Hey everyone, I just wanted to um, bring a little introduction to this uh, this uh, audio track that we did tonight. We uh, had Ralph Epperson on tonight and we talked about only the U.S. has nuclear weapons. And um, what happened was the, uh, the track was all messed up. Uh, whether it was a Skype error or something on Ralph's end or something on my end, I don't know. But uh, his uh, voice many times on the track sounded like a uh, bad cell phone, uh, cell phone call. So um, what I did is I got online and I found his um, presentation and downloaded it. Um, and uh, so all I wanted to do was put this as a header before that to let you know what happened, uh, to know that... Uh, we really did have a show tonight, and uh, hopefully this will rectify uh, what happened, and I can upload this to Spreaker, and it would be a better show for Spreaker, too. So, um, anyway, without further ado, I will uh, present uh, Ralph Epperson's uh, show tonight. Uh, this is part one of two. Tomorrow, or excuse me, next weekend, we shall have a... Uh, <clears throat> have it all worked out. I think we do already. And uh, we'll have a nice, clear and clean show for you. So be blessed, everybody, and uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Only the U.S. has nukes. The evidence that there are no nuclear weapons anywhere in the world except in the United States. Delivered on March the 24th, 2008. My name is Ralph Epperson, and I will be the one presenting this material today. I would like to start by explaining a little about this DVD. I have added narration to a series of slides in a PowerPoint presentation. This computer program does not allow you to speak while the slides are being changed. So please understand that this DVD might sound a little disjointed. But that is the way this program works. I also want you to know that I am granting you permission to make copies of this DVD for your friends and relatives. I believe this information is very important, and I would hope that it would get a wide distribution. I would also like to urge you, if you agree with the information that I will present and have an organization or university that you believe would benefit from this information, please contact me through the various ways shown at the end of this presentation. I would like to start by discussing what I will be covering during this lecture. It is my contention that the world has been deceived by those who claim that many nations of the world have nuclear weapons or are about to obtain them. 
I believe the evidence proves that no nation has any nuclear weapons except the United States of America and that no other nation will ever have them. For those of you not familiar with me, perhaps I can provide you with a little background information. I am a graduate of the University of Arizona, but I freely admit that many of the things I was taught there are simply not true. I have spent over 40 years of my life since graduation reading the works of history to re-educate myself. And one of the areas where I had to re-educate myself was in the area of nuclear weapons. I am certainly aware that the world teaches that many nations have nuclear weapons and that my position is completely contrary to this view. I am the author of four best-selling books, the first of which is entitled The Unseen Hand, an Introduction to the Conspiratorial View of History. This book is basically an American history book showing the influence of a conspiracy in the affairs of the United States. My second book is entitled The New World Order, a look at the horrific future planned for us by the world planners. The third one is entitled Masonry, Conspiracy Against Christianity, which provides the reader with the evidence that the worldwide Masonic Lodge has a, quote, true purpose, end quote, and that that purpose is the destruction of Christianity. And I want you to know that I have found that true purpose in their own literature. My fourth and final book is entitled Jesse James, United States Senator. It examines the evidence that Jesse James, the famous outlaw, did not die in 1882 as we have been taught, but lived to be 103 years of age. And between the years of 1882, when he was allegedly murdered, and 1951, when he really died, he was a major figure in America's past. He was elected a senator from the state of Montana and actually sat in the Senate of the United States for one term from 1901 to 1907 as a Democrat. This book can change the way you look at America's recent past. I was honored when I was invited in 2006 to be a guest on a History Channel program entitled Decoding the Past, in which I discussed the secrets concealed inside the symbols on the back of the dollar bill. By the way, I put the word void on the dollar bill to avoid receiving a charge of counterfeiting. And the reason they invited me was because of my explanation of the hidden meanings behind those symbols that I had written about in my books and videos. I started discussing these symbols in 1985 when I toured the country on a speaking tour with my first book entitled The Unseen Hand. Now I want to explain that I wrote this lecture myself because I have no staff assisting me. I have done all of my own research and as you will see as you view it, I use material readily available to anyone wanting to explore the possibility that there are no nuclear weapons in the world except in the United States. My sources have been my local newspapers, national magazines, and the books written by those directly involved in the subjects discussed.
I have no confidential sources, no government officials leaking information to me, and no one paying me to say these things. I have limited funds to produce this lecture, so I've used the most economical way that I know of to make it. So please understand that I am totally responsible for what you are about to see and hear. Now, I am certain that most of you watching this lecture have never considered the possibility that there are no nuclear weapons anywhere in the world except in the United States, and I understand that. But I am totally convinced that my research has been conducted into the material that proves my contention. And all I can do is ask that you be open and consider all of the evidence that I will be presenting before you judge my conclusions. If you have ever served on a jury, you will remember that the judge admonished you to be as open as you could, forgetting all of your previous prejudices, either in favor of or in opposition to the evidence, and to judge the argument strictly on the evidence presented. Then you would be free to reach a verdict. So may I recommend that you sit on a jury, please be open, and let me explain why I am making these claims. Now, I would like to thank you for allowing me this opportunity to speak on a subject as controversial as this. I truly appreciate it. I would like to start with a remembrance of a fine young man named Willie Solis. I first met him in 1983 and was instantly impressed with his conviction against communism. He was a Costa Rican who was photographed as he burned a flag in his town square. But the flag he burned was not the American flag, but the Russian flag. He burned their flag after he had learned that Russia had shot down the Korean Airlines Flight 007 in 1983 with American Congressman Larry McDonald and 268 other passengers and crew on board. I dedicated my second book to Willie with these words. I dedicate this book to Willie Solis, a freedom fighter from Costa Rica, who loved freedom so much that he was willing to pay the ultimate price for it. And he did. He was murdered by the communists. Willie Solis, 1962 to 1984, we miss you. Now, I would like... You to know that I started questioning the premise that the world was on the brink of a nuclear war, perhaps involving many nations, many years ago. This started probably in the early 1970s when I started teaching economics at a community college in Oregon. I was teaching my students that Russian communism was an economic failure. This was the cover of the March 1st, 1982 U.S. News and World Report magazine. And as you can see, it proclaims that communism was a great economic failure. And I had started teaching my students that this statement was true in the early 1970s. I was teaching them that I knew the reason why communism couldn't produce any major technology on its own. And that reason was simply that communism was contrary to human nature. The fact, the truth is that man will not produce when he is forced to do so. And communism forces its citizens to produce.
I started wondering how an economic system that was such an economic failure could produce rockets capable of going to the moon, orbiting spaceships capable of putting man into space, and thousands of intercontinental ballistic missiles and their warheads. That simply did not make any sense. If communism was such an economic failure, which it was, how could it do such things? That led me to even question the so-called Cold War, where we were supposed to be facing a military power superior to ours, the communist government of Russia. We had been taught that communist Russia had produced 15,000 or so nuclear warheads and that they were poised to strike targets in America. For over 50 years, ever since the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan in 1945, near the end of World War II, the world has been caught up in a fear of a nuclear war. Thoughts that the entire world could be destroyed in a nuclear war have frightened billions of people around the world. President George Bush showed just how serious the nuclear threat was in a speech he delivered on October the 17th, 2007. He stated that the possibility that the nation of Iran could get nuclear weapons raised a specter of World War III. Just a few years ago, the American government was telling us that Saddam Hussein of Iraq was developing nuclear weapons. They told us that Congress China either had the bomb or they were developing one. Communist North Korea was developing the bomb, and then in 2006, they reported that they had exploded one. India and Pakistan announced they were on the verge of a nuclear war. Israel has nuclear weapons and could use them against their enemy, some of the Arabian nations. In 1962, Russia sent nuclear-tipped missiles into Cuba, and the world teetered on the brink of a nuclear war with that nation. And all of this threat started in 1949 when Russia reported that they had exploded an atomic bomb four years after the Americans dropped the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end World War II. However, there was some doubt in the American government about this atomic bomb blast. President Harry Truman said this, I am not convinced the Russians have achieved the know-how to put together the complicated mechanism to make an atomic bomb. I am not convinced they have the bomb. So the American president was not convinced that Russia had exploded an atomic bomb. Now, in 2006, it is claimed that North Korea has the atomic bomb. But an examination of the evidence leaves one with the impression that this claim is bogus as well. It was way back in 1994 that North Korea started claiming that they had a nuclear bomb, but this article in the Tucson Citizen newspaper of February the 25th, 1994, states that high-ranking American State Department and Pentagon officials said that North Korea does not yet have nuclear weapons. There is no evidence that North Korea has test detonated a nuclear weapon. So even if the North Koreans in 2006 had the warhead as they claimed, 
It took them about 12 years to finally set one off. And it took the United States maybe three years to do the same thing. But there is evidence that North Korea has been lying about their claim to have detonated an atomic bomb. And not only lying about the atomic bomb, but whether or not they even have the ability to make the uranium to put into an atomic bomb. This article appeared in the Tucson Citizen on November the 5th, 2003, and reported, U.S. intelligence is not certain there even is a uranium enrichment plant, and that their claims might be a strategy of bluff, a strategy of bluff to extract concessions from the United States. So it appears as if North Korea knows how to deceive the rest of the world. And it appears as if they are deceiving the world about their ability to explode an atomic bomb in order to force the American government to pay them with concessions. This is an article that appeared in my local newspaper on May the 7th, 2005, and it reported that U.S. spy satellites have detected what may be preparations for North Korea's first test of a nuclear weapon. Although analysts believe it could be a calculated ruse, meaning a trick, on their part. So American experts were already questioning whether this attempt was a trick. The satellite images show they have dug and refilled a significant hole in the northeastern part of the country. The hole was dug in a manner consistent with preparations for an underground nuclear test, although it is not known whether they deposited a weapon inside. The North Koreans have a good idea when U.S. spy satellites are overhead and are capable of making such preparations solely to cause a reaction amongst its adversaries. So the American government suspected that their threat of exploding a nuclear weapon in 2005 was a trick. This is the Arizona Daily Star article of October the 9th, 2006, wherein they reported that North Korea claimed to have detonated a nuclear weapon. It reported that North Korea had claimed that there was no radioactive leakage from the test site. So the North Koreans were admitting that there would be no way for America to test to see if there was any radioactivity so that they could conclude that they had actually detonated a nuclear weapon. Apparently, some of the South Koreans felt that the test was a real one as they protested the announcement by burning some North Korean banners. Now, one has... One was not to question how any Western nation could verify that the North Koreans had done such a thing if the test was conducted underground, and secondly, that they were claiming that there was no radioactive leakage at the site. It appears to me that this was the way that the North Koreans were admitting that their test was not real, that they had not tested a nuclear weapon in this alleged test. So there was no way that the United States could verify that the North Koreans had set off such a nuclear weapon. And the American government was admitting that they were not sure if the test had actually been conducted as claimed.
This is an article from the October 14, 2006 Citizen, in which uh, Korea claimed, which they claimed that the government of the United States detected radioactive debris consistent with an atomic explosion. However, at the end of the article, it claimed that results from another test for radioactivity showed no evidence of such radioactivity. So this was America's way of stating that they did not believe it was an actual test of an atomic weapon. That they wanted us to believe it anyway. And furthermore, I heard a radio news broadcast which stated that four different Australian testing agencies found no radioactivity in the area around the purported North Korean test site. So the people of the world are left not knowing whether the test was nuclear or not. And notice this. Since February of 2008, North Korea has conducted no further tests, real or otherwise. So the story has died a quiet death. So one can only presume that these tests were not nuclear if they existed at all. But the story has not died a quiet death. There is one more part of it to tell. This is the article that appeared in my local, local Tucson Citizen of November the 5th, 2003, that we looked at before. But remember that the article quoted a U.S. intelligence officer saying that the test was a bluff to extract concessions from the United States. This article appeared on September the 3rd, 2007, and it declared that North Korea had agreed to dump its nuclear weapons program for, quote, political and economic compensation, end quote. In other words, we do not know that North Korea did not, det we now know that North Korea did not detonate a nuclear weapon just as I predicted in 2006, and that North Korea's purpose was to get economic concessions from the United States. It was a bluff, and it worked. They got what they wanted, economic concessions, concessions from the United States. They got our taxpayers' money. This is called economic blackmail. And the American government knew that they did not detonate a nuclear weapon and gave them concessions anyway. Now, I guess we Americans are not to be concerned. We are a wealthy people, and we have lots of money to pay off those who blackmail us. While I am here, I would like to discuss this Russian atomic bomb test in 1949. And to do so, I have to go back to World War II. The German government who started the war invaded Russia in June of 1941, and their armies advanced rapidly into the nation. The lesson was clear. Communist Russia did not have a sufficient military force to keep Germany from success on the Russian battlefield. America determined that Russia needed military equipment, and they devised a plan called Lend-Lease to supply it. The American government sent Russia $11 billion of the equipment necessary to turn that nation into a formidable military power, and as it was accepted, Russia started moving westward, driving the Germans out of their country. 
Everything that could be flown to Russia during the Lend-Lease program was sent to Great Falls, Montana, where it was then flown to Fairbanks, Alaska, and ultimately to Russia. The American officer in charge of expediting the Lend-Lease in Great Falls from May of 1942 to June of 1944 was Major George Racy Jordan. Fortunately for America, Major Jordan was a curious individual, and he opened many of the boxes being sent through Great Falls. He started noticing strange words like graphite, cadmium metal, thorium, proton, cyclotron, and uranium on the papers inside. He learned that America had sent Russia one-half of our supply of uranium, the essential ingredient in the construction of an atomic bomb. Major Jordan found the words Manhattan Project on many of the papers. He was totally unfamiliar with these words, but he soon learned what they meant. When, on September the 23rd, 1949, Russia allegedly exploded an atomic bomb. And the major learned that all of these words he had seen in 1942, 43, and 44 were connected to the American efforts in the building of an atomic bomb under the name of the Manhattan Project. He published his book in 1952, entitled From Major Jordan's Diaries. Many thought the book was wrong, but he published copies of some of the bills of lading that he had made after seeing them alongside the materials we were sending the Russian government. It was not until 1980 that the major was totally vindicated with the publication of a book written by James Roosevelt, the second son of President Franklin Roosevelt. The book was entitled A Family Matter. James was a major in the Army during World War II, and he was ordered by his father, the commander-in-chief of all armed forces, to turn over all of the plans, equipment, and the necessary components of an atomic bomb in 1942. On March the 6th, 1951, a married couple named Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were charged with transferring secret information to Russia on the construction of an atomic bomb. They were found guilty and were executed on June the 19th, 1993. When their sentence was read to them, Judge Irving Kaufman told the Rosenbergs, I consider your crime worse than murder. By your betrayal, you undoubtedly have altered the course of history to the disadvantage of our country. Millions of innocent people may pay the price of your treason. Notice that the judge called the passing of secrets on the atomic bomb betrayal and treason. As I said, the Rosenbergs were executed for their crime on June the 19th, 1953. So here's the question. When were James and Franklin Roosevelt tried and executed for betrayal and treason? They certainly were guilty of betrayal and treason when they did the same thing that the Rosenbergs did. 
but they did not receive the same sentence for the same crime. In fact, they were never tried for their betrayal and treason. And for many years, the Rosenbergs' children had applied to the American government to pardon their parents because they were innocent. And if they were innocent, why would the Roosevelt administration falsely charge them? And I've been wondering about that for many years. And the only explanation that I can come up with is this. The Roosevelt administration tried and convicted them and used their trial as a way of proving to the American people that the Russians now had the atomic bomb. And this way they could start the Cold War, and that would be costly, very costly indeed. And the American people would be taxed to pay for a threat that the Roosevelt administration created. Their explanation makes enormous sense to me because it fits the facts. They had to give the Russians the atomic bomb so that government could tax the American taxpayers of trillions of dollars for a Cold War threat that did not exist. So it is my considered opinion that all of this is an enormous charade because the only nation with any nuclear weapons today is the United States. That means that none of the other nations have them and none of the other nations will ever have them. That means there is absolutely no nuclear threat in the world unless the United States launches the nuclear weapons. That means that there are those in the American government even today who know that only the United States has nuclear weapons, but that they are duty-bound to protect the lie. Now, proving this claim has been a difficult task, because if I am right, none of the nations of the world will tell us. Do not expect Russia, North Korea, or Red China to admit that they have been perpetrating an enormous scam on the world for over 50 years. But I believe that I have developed enough documentation to prove my charges, and I'm hoping that you will see as you will see that as we progress through the evidence. It might be important for me to now give you a little more personal background so that you can know why I came to the conclusion that we have been deceived. I have been a student of history for over 40 years, and my research has shown me that there is a massive conspiracy at work in this world. And to show you how they have managed our past, I would like you to know a little bit more about my first book, The Unseen Hand, An Introduction to the Conspiratorial View of History. This book examines the evidence that the major events of the past, the wars, revolutions, and depressions, have been caused intentionally years in advance by an evil conspiracy. I call this view the conspiratorial view of history, and it definitely is not the view held by the majority of the historians today. The more traditional view of history is called the accidental view, and this view holds that the major events of the past have occurred by accident. No one really knows why these events happen. They just do. It might be appropriate at this time to define the word conspiracy as two or more people meeting in secret with an evil purpose.
And to show you that this conspiracy is real, I would like to discuss the testimony of a former president of the United States, Bill Clinton. I want you to know that this president told us on a live national broadcast that there was a conspiracy and that he had been elected president of the United States because he was a supporter of it. And to start the discussion, I would like to show you a book that the former president and vice president Al Gore wrote in 1992. It was entitled, Putting People First. And on page 217 of this book, Bill Clinton provided us with the transcript of his acceptance speech he delivered on July the 16th, 1992, when he accepted the nomination of his party as President of the United States. And on page 231, this is what he said. We're going to read those lines underlined in the yellow. As a teenager, I heard John Kennedy's summons to citizenship. And then as a student at Georgetown University, I heard that call clarified by a professor I had named Carol Quigley. We now have to go back a few years to the summer of 1963 when Bill Clinton was elected to participate in a thing called Boys Nation held each year in Washington, D.C. to expose some of the next year's senior students to life in the political arena. This is a picture of young Bill Clinton shown shaking the hand of President John Kennedy in the Rose Garden of the White House. This picture had to be taken during the summer of 1963 because, as you know, President Kennedy was assassinated in November of that year. Perhaps the reason that Bill Clinton thanked President Kennedy for getting him into politics was because Bill read John Kennedy's speech that he delivered over two years before their meeting. That speech was delivered on April the 27th, 1961, and in it, President Kennedy said, The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. We are a people inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and secret proceedings. But it wasn't until several years later that young Bill Clinton learned exactly what Kennedy was speaking about. As you know, he was elected president of the United States in 1992. And to acknowledge the defeat of George Bush, the incumbent president, Time Magazine named Bill Clinton Man of the Year in January of 1993. By the way, please notice what Time did when they placed Bill Clinton's picture in front of the letter M in the word Time. They strategically placed his head in such a way as to show the two lines of the letter M as being horns on top of his head. Were they trying to tell us something? But in truth, Time Magazine should have named... These two men, as men of the year, President John Kennedy and Professor Kel Quigley, the two men who made Bill Clinton president of the United States. Just so you know, I want to apologize to time. 
I took one of their covers and cut out its picture and made this cover myself. I don't want to get sued for claiming they made a cover when they didn't. Let me now discuss how these two men made Clinton president of the United States. According to this U.S. News and World Report article in 1992, Bill Clinton graduated from Hot Springs High School in if he completed his studies in four years, he would have graduated in 1968, and that's what he did. Let me show you what Dr. Quigley taught young Bill Clinton while he was at Georgetown. Dr. Quigley wrote this book entitled Tragedy and Hope in 1966 when Bill Clinton was a student at Georgetown. This is a poor quality photocopy of the Georgetown Alumnus Magazine for the winter of 1993, meaning 25 years after Bill Clinton graduated. It says that the book entitled Tragedy and Hope was required reading for Dr. Quigley's courses. That means that Bill Clinton read this book while he was at Georgetown, and we can now read what Bill read. The Inside Dust cover says that Dr. Quigley was the professor of history at the Foreign Service School at Georgetown University and that he formerly taught at Princeton and Harvard and that he received his Ph.D. from Harvard University as well. So Dr. Quigley is what you would call a liberal establishment professor. Now let's see what Dr. Quigley taught young Bill Clinton in his book. 1920. An international Anglophile network which operates, and by the way, the word Anglophile means primarily English. So it operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes the Communists act. In fact, this network, which we may identify as the round table groups, has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other group and frequently does so. Quigley wrote, I know of the operations of this network because I studied it for 20 years, meaning back to just about World War II, and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and seek or most of its instruments. But in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown. And I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. And that is why he titled his book Tragedy and Hope. It is a tragedy that this network is hiding itself from the view of the public, but that they are the hope of the world. Now, this is an absolutely staggering statement. This conspiracy planned World War II, which started in 1941, but was planned as early as 1920, and killed 53 million people because this network wanted to create the United Nations. And Dr. Quigley has no aversion to that. And notice, if Bill Clinton did not rebuke the views of Dr. Quigley, as he did not, 
That means that Bill Clinton also has no aversion to the murder of 53 million people to give the people of the world the United Nations. That shows you just how evil this conspiracy is. And Dr. Quigley continued with this quote from page 324. The powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim. Nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled by the central banks of the world. And just so you know, the privately owned Federal Reserve is America's central bank. And these central banks act in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent meetings and conferences. And then on page 954, Dr. Quigley admits that this conspiracy actually controls communism. It was this group of people who provided much of the framework and influence which the communist sympathizers and fellow travelers took over in the United States in the 1930s. It must be recognized that the power that these energetic left-wingers exercised was never their own power or communist power, but was ultimately the power of the international financial coterie. It now becomes appropriate to introduce you to, Quigley says this about Cecil Rhodes. Rhodes feverishly exploited the diamond and gold field. In fact, the African nation of Rhodesia was named after Cecil Rhodes. That nation is now called Zimbabwe. In the middle 1890s, Rhodes had a personal yearly income of about $5 million, which was spent so freely for his mysterious purposes. These purposes centered on his desire to bring all the habitable portions of the world under their control. For this purpose, Rhodes left part of his great fortune to found the Rhodes Scholarships of South Africa and rose to be Prime Minister of Cape Colony from 1890 to 1896 at Oxford University. So where did Bill Clinton go after graduation from Georgia? Cecil Rhodes, one of the many people that Dr. Quigley identified as being one of these conspirators. Count in 1968. This is page 36 of the U.S. News and World Report article we've looked at before, 1992. And it shows that from 1968 to 1970, Bill Clinton was at Oxford studying as a Rhodes scholar. Dr. Quigley then explained 
on page 582 what the Rhodes Scholarship Organization did in America. They set up the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. And then on page 950, Quigley taught Clinton. The American branch of this organization, abbreviated to the CFR, has played a very significant role in the history of the United States. So in 1988, several years after he returned to America, Bill Clinton joined the Council on Foreign Relations. And then in 1992, the Council on Foreign Relations delivered the election to President Bill Clinton. And President Clinton showed his gratitude by appointing at least 100 CFR members to positions inside his administration. I think this would be the time to mention one more individual who assisted young Bill Clinton determine how to become president of the United States. And that person was William Fulbright, a Democrat senator from Clinton's home state of Arkansas. President Clinton worked on the senator's staff while a young man. And it is no coincidence that Senator Fulbright was both a Rhodes Scholar and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And the last quote I would like to bring to your attention is this one, found on page 73 of Tragedy and Hope. Dr. Quigley wrote, The business interests expected to control both parties equally. What Dr. Quigley was saying is that both political parties are controlled by the same people. This was amply illustrated by this cartoon of both political parties occupying the same castle, the Democrats occupying one wing and Republicans occupying the other. And the leaders of the two parties were meeting together on the roof of the building. Dr. Quigley continued, Indeed, some of them intended to contribute to both and allow an alternation of the two parties in public office. That means the Democrats in office would be there for eight years, and then the Republicans would be in office for eight years, pretty much the same as it has been doing since the 1920s. The Republicans held the presidency under President Ronald Reagan for eight years, from 18, 1981 to 1989. The Democrats held the presidency under Bill Clinton for eight years, from 1993 to 2001. And then George Bush, the, the son, was elected to two terms, which means he will leave office in 2009. And then, due to the alternating party practice, the network will elect a Democrat, which means that this woman will be our next president for eight years. All because there is an international network that controls both parties equally. Now let me continue with Quigley's answer to the question. Why do they want to alternate the two parties in power? And here's his answer. In order to conceal their own influence and inhibit any exhibition of independence by politicians, 
and allow the electorate, that's us, allow the electorate to believe they, meeting us, were exercising our own free choice. See, we, we dummies are too stupid to figure this out, so they get away with it. We think that we change things when we elect Republicans after the Democrats have ruled for eight years, and they get away with it. And to show you that the statement that both parties are controlled by the same people is true, let me show you the evidence that President George Bush, the father, intentionally, intentionally threw the election in 1992 to Bill Clinton. There is a universal rule in politics, whether you are running for the presidency of the United States or for dog catcher of Tucson, and here you'll see one of my lawn signs. Uh, I, I ran for dog catcher in 1996, and this is one of my signs. Unfortunately, I didn't win, but I, um, I don't think it was my campaign slogan, a vote early and often had any, <laughs> anything to do with it. But let me get back to what I was saying. There is a universal rule in national, state, and local politics, and that is never, never, never promise a tax increase. You can talk about increasing benefits or adding new bureaus, but you never, never, never tell the electorate you will increase taxes to pay for it. Because if you do, you will most certainly lose the election. The taxpayers will not vote for the candidates who promise tax increases. Now, to show you that George Bush knew the rule during his presidency, he coined a very catchy phrase, read my lips, no new taxes. This was repeated so often that it became a joke amongst comedians, but the intent was to make it well known among the American people. So what happened next? George Bush raised taxes in 1990, and he lost the election of 1992. George Bush intentionally lost the election because just as Bill Clinton told us, both parties are controlled by the same people. And it was not a coincidence that George Bush was also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, just like Bill Clinton. That means that the conspiracy wanted Bill Clinton in office. He had followed the yellow brick road, and a conspiracy made him president of the United States. So there you have it. President Bill Clinton is a member of the vast left-wing conspiracy. He has told us with his own mouth. Part two, the fact that there is a conspiracy in the world is one of the greatest evidences that there are no warheads except in the United States. And to start the discussion, I would like to ask you two questions. How many nuclear weapons have been dropped in anger since the two bombs were dropped in 1945? And the answer is... None, not one, none, zip, zero. And I'm saying that there is a reason for this. And the reason there have been none dropped in 19, since 1945 is simply 
there are none to drop, except those in possession of the United States. And the second question is this. Why would this worldwide conspiracy that Bill Clinton told us about put warheads into the hands of the people who might use them against the conspirators? Do you think they want to get nuked? I don't think so. And because they do not, they have not allowed anyone except the United States to build them. Remember that Clinton said that they dominate, this conspiracy dominates the political system of each country. If they are in charge, why would they give any opposition the ability to end their rule? As we learn from President Bill Clinton, these conspirators meet periodically at a central location, and it would only take one nuclear weapon to be launched at one of those meetings, and the conspiracy would be materially damaged. And I would like to give you a personal experience to show you why I think that way. About three years ago, I was walking between two terminals in the Dallas, Texas airport, and I saw one of America's leading senators standing in the boarding line of an airline headed to Mazatlan, Mexico. This is an actual photograph of the senator, but I put the paper bag over his head because I don't want to accuse him of something that he did not do. The senator was waiting in the line to board the plane, and as far as I could tell, he was all by himself, meaning his family was not with him, nor was he traveling with some of his aides. And the first thought I had was that the senator was traveling to one of these meetings by himself, because I knew that he had attended some of these meetings in the past. And since he was going to a remote location, it occurred to me that this, was, that this senator could quite likely be on his way to a Bilderberg meeting in Mazatlan, Mexico. Now, if you do not know about the Bilderberg meetings, they are held once a year and consist, as I remember, of about 150 of these conspirators, and they get together in isolated locations periodically to meet and make plans for the future of the world to the detriment of the people. It occurred to me that this senator must not fear ever getting nuked at one of these meetings if that was where he was going. It would only take one anti-conspiracy general with one nuclear-tipped missile to read about the Bilderberg meeting and then reprogram it to land in one of their meetings, and the senator and all of the other conspirators would get nuked. And this has never happened. I mean, it has never happened. And the answer is simple, because Bill Clinton told us these conspirators control both the communist and the capitalist nations of the world. And they know that there are no communist nations with the nuclear weapons to nuke them with. I will ask the question again. Do you believe these conspirators want to get nuked? And I believe they do not. They are many things, but they're not stupid. Now, there's a corollary to that question. The communists killed 40 million Russians in the Russian Revolution of 1917 to 1923. 
Now, it was commonly known that the Russian people hated communism, yet there was never a revolution to overthrow the communist system and replace it with the free government. I would now like to quote a Russian colonel and writer who made a similar statement in 1961. This is Colonel Oleg Penkovsky, who was a regular army officer in the Soviet intelligence department who defected to the United States. He wrote a book entitled The Penkovsky Papers that I will be quoting several times from during my speech. Colonel Penkovsky told us that even the communists did not like communism. He wrote in his book, There are no more communists among my friends, party members of today. There is none who believes in communism. And the question that needs to be asked is why has there never been a revolution in Russia to replace the communist system if so many people hated the system? And the easy answer to that question is that the Russian people have no weapons to start a revolution, and that is true. The people have had their private weapons taken from them by the communists. They have no way to resist, but that is not totally true. They have reportedly over 15,000 nuclear weapons all over the country. So the next question becomes, why didn't one Russian general use any of these warheads against the communists in Russia to end the brutal and un unpopular communist system? This is a photograph of Mikhail Gorbachev addressing the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union on November the 2nd, 1987 the 70th anniversary of the 1917 revolution. This photograph appeared in the Soviet Life magazine, Russia's equivalent to America's Life magazine, and the article accompanying the picture said that there were 5,000 communists in attendance. Let's just theorize that one Russian general read about the meeting before it happened and realized that he has the power to nuke 5,000 of the communists plus Premier Mikhail Gorbachev and end the brutal rule of communism in Russia. All he had to do was go to the basement and reprogram one missile the night before the meeting and then fire it the next morning. And communism in Russia would have ended. Notice that he would not have to lead a revolution. He would not need a whole army. He would not even have needed someone to assist him. He could have done this all by himself without telling anyone. And after he nuked the meeting, he could then have gone to a television station capable of broadcasting his story nationwide and announced that he was the one who accomplished the feat. And he would have been hailed as the greatest Russian hero of all time. He would have rid the nation of the hated system known as communism. So the question becomes one of asking why no Russian general ever ended communism when he had the power to do so. Why has this never happened? In over 60 years of brutal communist rule, since they had nuclear weapons, no one has dared end the very unpopular communist tyranny with nuclear weapons. And I want to know why. 
And the only answer that makes sense is that there are no nuclear weapons in Russia to do such a thing. And if anyone knows that in Russia, it is the communist generals. They simply do not have any nuclear weapons. It is the only explanation that makes sense. Let me now discuss some other examples of how we have been lied to. To show you that Russia has never had any atomic weapons, let me discuss the claim that Russia has developed what someone has called suitcase nuclear weapons, commonly called suitcase nukes. News reports claim that some, something like 23 of these suitcase nukes have been stolen from Russia and were for sale to anyone with sufficient money to buy one. The Arizona Daily Star of November the 11th, 2007, had an article about these so-called suitcase nukes entitled, Experts Say That Fears About Suitcase Nukes Are Likely Unfounded. The article was accompanied by this picture that shows what a suitcase nuke would look like. The article explained that this was a model of what a suitcase nuke would look like. So notice that this was a model, not an actual suitcase nuke. The article claimed that a true suitcase nuke would be highly complex to produce, require significant upkeep, and cost a small fortune, and that and that no one would be uh, one would not last more than several months because the nuclear core would decompose so quickly, and that a sufficient amount of uranium necessary to explode as an atomic bomb would be too heavy for one person to carry in a suitcase. Furthermore, the uranium would wreak havoc on the electrical system. Yoko went on to point out that an FBI director said that no one has been able to truly identify the existence of these devices. So the suitcase nuke is just another fraud, a lie to frighten us. Now, let me explain that the nation of Israel has never acknowledged that it has nuclear weapons, even though the world believes that they do. This is a picture of Ehud Olmert, Israel's prime minister, and while in Europe, he made what appears to be a slip of the tongue. During an interview on December the 12th, 2006, with a general television station, he made, a German television station, he made the following statement about Iran's attempt to acquire nuclear weapons. He said, can you say that this is the same level? When they, meaning Iran, are aspiring to have nuclear weapons, as France, America, Russia, and Israel. The London Telegraph newspaper quoted an Israeli spokesman later as saying, Omar did not mean to say that Israel had or aspired to acquire atomic weapons. And then he stated that Israel has maintained a decades-long silence about possessing nuclear weapons. And that Israel has operated a, quote, policy of nuclear ambiguity, end quote in relation to official statements about its weaponry. MSNBC, the cable news network, 
put this map of Israel on their website, showing the location of Israel's strategic weapons plants and missile facilities. But the written information accompanying the map said, despite Israel's refusal to acknowledge its nuclear weapon status, its secret secret arsenal is an open secret. One can only wonder how MSNBC knows that Israel has nuclear weapons when the Israeli government denies it. And notice that the network admits that their arsenal is, quote, a secret, end quote. How does NBC, MSNBC, know that Israel has nuclear weapons if it is a secret? In other words, Israel has nuclear weapons because we suspect that they do, not because we can prove that they do. This is called objective journalism. And another example is this one. Everyone remembers the fact that Saddam Hussein of Iraq claimed to have weapons of mass destruction, including quite possibly the materials to make an atomic bomb. But way back in 2001, shortly after the 9-11 attack, I said that the American and United Nations inspectors charged with finding Iraq's weapons of mass destruction would not find any. I was saying that they did not have even the atomic bomb nor the components to make one. Of course, President George Bush said that he did. Now, let me provide you with some evidence that Saddam did not have any weapons of mass destruction exactly as I predicted. This is a little article in the November 11, 2007 Parade Magazine about a new book that was published entitled The Terrorist Watch by Ronald Kessler, investigative reporter. He said that Saddam was secretly debriefed for seven months by FBI agent George Pirro and that Saddam told the FBI agent that he had faked the existence of the weapons of mass destruction to deter an attack by Iran. And that it worked with that nation, but that it led to the attack by the United States. So once again, my predictions came true. Saddam had no weapons of mass destruction, just as I had predicted. I would like to start my discussion with, about, with other evidence that there are no nukes in the world except in the United States with this quote from a book entitled The Art of War by Sun Tzu, who wrote it over 1,500 years ago, about 500 B.C. The dust cover of the book claims that these essays have never been surpassed and might well be the concentrated essence of wisdom on the conduct of war. Sun Tzu wrote about deception, and I would like to quote several of these thoughts to illustrate the point. In fact, his book has but one major premise, and this is it. All warfare is based upon deception. And the final summation of his work is contained in these words. When you see a great enemy, practice deceit. And America and Russia were, quote, great enemies, end quote. And to show you that the Russians have learned the lessons from Sun Tzu's book, examples of Deception. 
It started on October the 4th, 1957, when the Russians proudly announced that they had orbited Sputnik, the first space satellite. This is a photocopy of the New York Times newspaper for October the 5th, 1957, and you can see that the headline headlines announced the orbiting of the Sputnik capsule. But now in 2007, we can know that Sputnik was never orbited. This is a photograph of that satellite, but as we are going to see, there were real claims with the Russian claim that it orbited the Earth. This picture appeared in the October 21st, 1957 edition of Life magazine, and the caption underneath the picture reported, Cutaway drawings of the Sputnik, so far received from the USSR, are copies of you like to explore what has been called the space race because it is rampant with U.S. concepts not of Sputnik. Why would the Soviets need to resort to sending out pictures of an American satellite if they had orbited a real one? Please do not do what Life magazine did and not ask. But I've been asking that question for over 20 years. Is this the subtle message of what Life magazine just wrote? Are they saying that they knew that Russia did not orbit Sputnik? Is that what Life magazine was telling us? But now, on October the 3rd, 2007, we can know that it is doubtful that Russia ever orbited Sputnik. There were reports around the world that people on the ground could see a winking light on the Sputnik as it passed overhead. This is Boris Chertoff, one of the founders of the Soviet space program. According to the Associated Press, Mr. Chertoff said that that winking light was not the Sputnik, but the second stage of the booster rocket. So Sputnik had no light on it, or it didn't orbit it at all. And the reasons, reason the Sputnik had no light on it involves the reason the Russians sent America their own cutaway drawings. The Russians did not put any scientific equipment inside or on the Sputnik, even a simple light. This article explained that engineers tried to persuade Sergei Korolyov, the Soviet scientist in the Sputnik, the chief scientist in the Sputnik program to pack Sputnik with some scientific instruments. Koroyov refused, saying there was not enough time. So they sent America cutaway drawings of their Vanguard satellite, uh, meaning our Vanguard satellite, because there was nothing inside or on the Sputnik to show in a cutaway drawing. And Life Mag. But no answers were given until the year 2007, when we learned that Sputnik never orbited the Earth. Buzzine did not question this. Only Ralph Epperson did. So it appears as if Sputnik did not orbit anything. The real reason, real story about Sputnik was not told by these reports because it was America that could have launched the first orbiting satellite and our efforts to have done so were delayed by
President Dwight Eisenhower. And to tell this story, I have to go back even further, back to the end of World War II, because it was at the end of World War II that, a United, that the United States gave Russia its rocket and missile program. As perhaps you, you will remember, Germany was building the world's first rocket engines, the V-1 and the V-2, during the war. These rockets were constructed at two different sites, Peenemunde and Nordhausen, two cities in Germany. Before he was elected president of the United States, Dwight Eisenhower was the supreme commander of all of the forces in the European theater during World War II. At the end of the war, General Eisenhower ordered General George Patton to occupy the two cities of Peenemunde and Nordhausen. So he had ordered his, his troops under his command to occupy those installations, and he, the troops found the entire rocket-making facilities intact. And they were ordered to secure the entire installations and preserve them exactly as they found them. Dr. Werner Keller, a German writer, wrote this book entitled East Minus West Equals Zero, in which he discussed the details of the turnover of these two cities to the Russians. He wrote that General Eisenhower had signed an order that all factories, installations, patents, drawings, and plans must be placed intact and in good condition at the disposal of the Soviet representatives. Days later, Russian soldiers arrived in the two cities to dismantle all of the factories that were used to construct the German rocket engines. They also removed thousands of V-2 rockets, some completely constructed. That means America gave Russia the ability to get into space by turning over thousands. was wrong. The Americans were not fools. The American general, Dwight Eisenhower, was giving the Soviets the ability to have a missile force so that they could convince the American government that they needed to spend billions of dollars to develop a competing missile program to protect us against a nuclear attack by Russia. The Americans were not fools at all. Remember that governments exist thousands of V-2 rockets to them at the end of World War II. Dr. Keller quoted a Soviet colonel saying, what fools these Americans are. But the Soviet colonel spend money. Spend it no matter what the reason. And one of the best ways to spend money is to create your enemy's missile and ro rocket program. It is certain that your spending can increase if your enemy has a superior missile program, especially if we give that government that superior missile force. But the story doesn't end there. It continues in the of the German rocket building industry was the turning over of those who had worked in the design and construction of the rockets. Over 2,000 German scientists were taken to Russia by force to work on the Russian missiles. However, 129 of Germany's leading scientists were led out of Germany to surrender to the American forces. They were being led by Werner von Braun, who was the head of Germany's rocket research program at the time. 
He came to America and developed the fledgling American rocket industry. This was the article that reported on his death on June the 18th, 1977. It told an interesting story. Long before the Soviet Union launched Sputnik on October the 4th, 1957, Von Braun said his team had the capability to orbit a payload by putting an upper stage on the Redstone rocket which was the first rocket developed by the Von Braun team. But President Dwight Eisenhower turned him down on the grounds that the Redstone was a military rocket and that he wanted to emphasize peaceful uses of space. He ordered the development of a completely new rocket, the Vanguard, as a satellite launcher. When the first Vanguard exploded in 1957, the Von Braun team got its chance. On January the 31st, 1958, a modified Redstone rocket propelled Explorer 1 into orbit. Notice that America used the Redstone rocket to launch our space program, even though the President did not want the United States to use the military rocket for space purposes. So General Eisenhower gave the Russians thousands of V-2 rockets by delaying our own efforts at launching the first satellite. General and then President Eisenhower, which side was to launch their space and rocket program? And then President Eisenhower made certain that the Russians would be the first in space. Were you on? And I want you to know that I'm not the only person who has asked this question. This is a book entitled The Politician, written by Robert Welch and published in 1963. It is about the career of Dwight Eisenhower. And on page 25, he answered the question. Eisenhower deliberately and consciously served the interests of Russia rather than his own country. So I am not the only one who thinks he was on the other side. And I would like to recommend that you read this book entitled The Politician to see the documentation that Eisenhower's career as both a general and president did a great deal to serve the interests of the communists. This book really awakened me after I read it back in the 1960s and convinced me that I had to continue my reading. So Russia became the world's leading rocket designer and manufacturer and an early leader in the space race. All because one man, General and then President Eisenhower, did what he could to assist the communist uh, conspiracy. You might recall that Bill Clinton told us that Dr. Quigley wrote that this network has no aversion to cooperating with the communists and frequently does so. And Dwight Eisenhower just proved Clinton and Quigley to be correct. Now let me bring the V-2 rocket that General Eisenhower gave to Russia into the modern world. The world has been frightened by the firings of the Russian-made Scud missile recently all over the Mideast. 
this article says that Iraq fired scuds at Kuwait. And there is an interesting story behind this as well. Just a few years ago, the United States press reported that a North Korean ship was found carrying 30 Russian-made Scud missiles bound for Yemen, an Arabian country near Saudi Arabia. So Russia has been selling the Scuds to Middle Eastern nations. Now this is a drawing of the V-2 rocket on the right, shown side by side with the Scud missile on the left. The two are approximately shown in scale to one another, but you will notice that they are basically the same size. The V-2 rocket is 39 feet, 8 inches tall, and the Scud is 37 feet tall. And it appears as if the two rockets are of the same diameter. During the Gulf War, the press reported that Iraq fired seven Scud missiles into Tel Aviv and that seven people were injured. That doesn't sound like a very dangerous missile to me. Those who purchase them are not getting much bang for their buck, and their inability to be of much consequence was confirmed by two articles that appeared in my local newspaper. This one appeared on January the 24th, 1991, during the Desert Storm War. It reported that the Soviet-made Scud Bs are fairly inaccurate, and that and that assessment was repeated in this article that appeared three days later. This article said that the Russian Scud missiles are descended from Hitler's V-2 weapons, both in technology and purpose, and that they were, quote, too inaccurate and weak to do any significant military damage, end quote. And the reason these missiles are so ineffective is that the Scud missiles are 60-year-old V-2 rock rockets repackaged to conceal their identity. All the Russians have done is take the covering off of the 60-year-old V-2 and replace it with another one so the witness would not see the resemblance. As I understand it, the V-2 rocket did not have a guidance system. Just like bullets in a gun, they only go where they are pointed. The scuds were just pointed towards the target and fired. That would account for their being assessed as, quote, being not too efficient, end quote. And Yemen bought 30 of these missiles from Russia just a few years ago. That is called an inventory reduction sale of Russia's discount armament store selling obsolete missiles as war surplus. Now let me show you what the Russians have done with the V-2 rocket that the generous General Dwight Eisenhower gave them back in 1945. This is a scale drawing of the Russian SS-6 Sapwood rocket shown side by side a drawing of the Russian of the German V-2 rocket. The Sapwood rocket was developed in 1960, and it consists of 32 rockets strapped around a fuel carrier in the center. You will notice that those yellow and gray rockets around the Sapwood are about the same size as the V-2 German rocket. And the reason they are is because the Russians took the 32 rocket engines, already the V-2 rocket engines, already proven to work by the Germans, 
and Stotch taped them together to increase the thrust of the rocket because they needed a more powerful rocket to launch heavy space equipment. This is called the bunch system by the Russians. Now, this is a photograph of the Russians launching a satellite into space in 1989 using the bunch method. This is a picture that appeared in my local newspaper in 2001, and it shows another Russian rocket, maybe not the Sapwood, because it shows only 20 V-2 rockets strapped together to the central core. But you can see that even 56 years after the Russians were given the V-2, this is how little they have developed. In 56 years, they have not developed a rocket consisting of various stages, as the Americans have. All they have done is scotch tape the V-2 rocket to a central core. That doesn't speak too well of their rocket technology, does it? Now, as I said, the Russians' purpose in bunching their V-2 rocket is to increase their thrust and hence their ability to put more weight into space. But I'd like to give you a non-scientific explanation as to why that system is not very efficient. One Sunday while I was standing in the patio of the church I attended, the first grade Sunday school teacher decided to move her 30 children from one building to another. She very wisely foreplanned their journey, and she told her charges that all of them should hold on to a rope as they walked across the patio. Her flight plan was to have all of the children hanging on to the rope for the entire journey with her at the head. All went well for about one half of the trip when about six of her children suddenly let go of the rope and scattered. Her idea was well conceived, just like the Russians. Her flight plan was well designed, just like the Russians. And it actually worked for a few moments. But trying to get 32 rockets to fire together is roughly about the same in difficulty as trying to get 30 first grade children to hold, hold on to a rope. It just is nearly impossible. Someone else who agreed with that assessment was Leonid Radmirov, a Russian space writer who defected to the West in 1966. He wrote a book in 1971 entitled The Russian Space Bluff, and in it he tells his readers that as late as 1971, 26 years after Russia got the V-2 rocket, the Soviet Union is still experiencing great difficulties in the construction of large boosters, meaning single booster rockets, and is still making use of the heavy, clumsy, and not very reliable bunch system. So for about 50 years, the Russians have not been able to develop their own rockets. They've used the 50-year-old German-built V-2 rocket to boost their satellites into space. I would now like to discuss some evidence that the American government knows that the Russians do not have a missile nor nuclear weapons force. On December the 8th, 1987, President Ronald Reagan and Premier Mikhail Gorbachev from Russia signed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, commonly abbreviated to the INF Treaty. 
This treaty commits both nations to the destruction of hundreds of intermediate-range missiles, and it would seem they're nuclear warheads. This treaty was only the most recent one signed by both nations in an attempt to reduce the nuclear threat. Now, the first question that occurred to me is this one. Why did the United States believe that Russia had any missiles to destroy when there is overwhelming evidence that they do not? In January of 1986, the Saturday Morning Breakfast Club that I belonged to in Tucson, Arizona, invited a retired defense intelligence agency expert to speak to us. He brought a series of graphs with him showing red lines representing the United States and blue lines representing the Soviet Union. In every case, the blue line was longer than the red line. The Soviets had more tanks, more divisions of soldiers, more submarines, more airplanes, and more significantly, more nuclear warheads than did the United States. After he completed his talk, he graciously consented to answer questions from the audience. So I asked him, how does the United States know that the Soviet Union has missiles and warheads? He responded, we know because of two methods. Our spy satellites take photographs of the Russian missiles, and two, our intelligence departments question defecting Russian citizens for their knowledge of the Russian missiles. I then asked him, can our satellites detect whether a missile on the ground is wood or concrete? And he answered, no, they cannot. I then asked him, how do we know that the Russian defectors are telling the truth? And he responded, we do not know. Notice what he was saying. If I am right that the Soviet Union has no nuclear-tipped missiles, it would be very easy to fool the American government. All Russia would have to do is three things. Number one, make a public statement that they've deployed thousands of missiles all over the country. Two, build objects that look like missiles and then scatter them all over the nation because American satellites will take photographs of these objects and since they cannot determine if the missile is real or fake, they would count them as real. And then number three, train spies to claim that Russia has missiles in their particular area, and then have them defect to the United States, and then have them fool the American intelligence experts by claiming they know where these missiles are. The United States would then have two separate sources that the Russians did indeed have missiles all over the country, one from satellite photos and the other from defecting Russian citizens who provided eyewitness accounts of where the missiles were. I believe this is exactly what the Russians have done during the entire Cold War. And notice this. The American government knew that this was their strategy. I would now like to quote the Russian colonel and writer I quoted before, Oleg Penkovsky, who made a similar statement in 1961. In his book, he commented about an article on nuclear missile armaments by a major general in the Soviet Engineering Technical Service, M. Goryanov. Penkovsky wrote, 
you will see how he uses American data taken from open American sources. He is forced to use American data. He cannot get access to similar data on our own Soviet weapons. So he was making decisions on Soviet missile development from American and not Russian sources. One can only conclude that the Russians did not have any Soviet missile development information. Another Russian named Abraham Schifrin was a major in the Russian army during World War II. He had been at one time the chief legal advisor in the contract division of the Ministry of Defense in Moscow. He gave me the information when I met him in person in 1985 while he was on a speaking tour of the United States. Because he was Jewish, he was allowed to leave Russia and he emigrated to Israel. When he got to Israel, he created an institute that interviewed other Russian emigrants who came to Israel about their knowledge of the concentration camps in Russia. I'll talk more about him in another instance in a little while. In 1980, he published this book entitled The First Guidebook to Prisons and Concentration Camps of the Soviet Union. This book documented the location of over 2,000 concentration camps in the Soviet Union with over 3 million inmates, many of whom were jailed for their religious beliefs in a nation that was officially atheist. Mr. Schiffman told me that he had many reports from these Russian immigrants who had seen wooden missiles all over the Soviet Union. Two years later, he wrote to me, I have heard from former Soviet citizens that part of the long-range missiles were imitations, imitations made of wood or metal for the purpose of creating the appearance of Soviet military superiority. There are silos with such imitations of missiles. They are deliberately camouflaged less carefully so that they would not be missed by the Western satellites. Notice what he just said. Many of the former Russians know that their homeland has built phony missiles to fool American spy satellites. They know what our intelligence department does not know. And then Mr. Schiffrin continued, This fact has been known to the people in the Pentagon for many years. I personally told them about it as far back as 1973 on the basis of my knowledge brought from the USSR. In other words, the American intelligence officers interview certain Russian immigrants and not other Russian immigrants. They interview only those Russian immigrants who say their missiles are real and not those who say that they are fake. They are very selective in who they interview, aren't they? The eyewitnesses to the fraud, the people who can prove that the Russian missiles are fake, are in Israel. Notice that Mr. Schiffman did not say that he was aware that the American government had interviewed thousands of Israelis who know the missiles are fake. America interviews 
only those who say they are real. Even the Russian government admits that some of their missiles are phony. The Tucson Citizen printed an interesting article on December the 10th, 1987. This article was written by the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times, considered by many to be the official establishment news sources. The article read in part, The Soviets have told U.S. officials that about 200 of their medium-range missiles, earlier described as operational weapons, are really just training missiles, many of them filled with concrete. The Russians have admitted that they had 1,950 missiles, and if 200 of them were phony, that's about 10%, meaning 1 in 10 missiles the Russians build are phony. The article continued, in fact, one senior U.S. official said he suspects that many of the so-called dummy missiles were built to deceive U.S. spy satellites. The article continued, the senior U.S. official cited the large number of the dummies as evidence that the bogus weapons were deployed to mislead American intelligence estimates. Now, there's a logical question that must be answered after reading that excerpt from the article. Why didn't the American government know that some of Russia's missiles were phony before they told us? This article confirms the report of the defense intelligence agent that spoke to our breakfast club three years before that our spy satellites were unable to detect whether the missiles it photographs are real or fake. I think the large number of dummies the article talked about were not phony missiles, but were American intelligence experts. Notice that the article said that the American government has been estimating the number of Russian missiles. This means we do not know exactly how many missiles they do have. That statement can be confirmed by comparing the Russian government's statement that they have 441 SS-20 missiles with what the American government has been estimating they have. The INF Treaty that Reagan and Gorbachev signed obligates the Russian government to destroy 441 SS-20 missiles, but the American government community, intelligence community, has been estimating they had as many as 2,250. This chart shows the various American estimates, ranging from a low of 550 to a high of 2,250, and the Russians claim to only have 441. The question of whether or not the major weapon the INF Treaty is to destroy Russia's SS-20 missile even exists has not been satisfactorily answered. The Russians are obligated to destroy 441 of these missiles and no one, including the Russians, are certain they even have one. The Daily Oklahoma newspaper for December 25, 1987, had an interesting article on the subject. It stated that Senator Steve Sims of Idaho and Secretary of State George Schultz were both on CBS's Face the Nation television program on November 29, 1987. 
The article, state, the article stated that Senator Steve Sims revealed that the United States had, quote, never seen, end quote, never seen the SS-20 missile, nor even a picture of it. We didn't even know for certain whether the Russian government even had one SS-20 missile. Russia supposedly had 441 of these missiles, and the American government had never seen even one. The article continued. The United States had to rely on satellite photographs of the garages, of the garages in which the missile is housed. The American government is not counting missiles. It is counting garages in which the missile is housed. This is so ludicrous, it is laughable. We do not count missiles, we count garages, and our spy satellites cannot tell us what is inside those garages. But we presume that the Russians would not build a garage without putting a missile inside. Boy, they must be what we call our missile counters. But that must be, <laughs> let me go over that again. Boy, that must be why we call our missile counters an intelligence department. And I would like to now provide you with additional evidence that the SS-20 is really a phantom missile. This drawing of an SS-20 was in the March 1984 Air Force magazine when they published details about the Soviet military provided by Jane's, all the world's leading expert on the subject. Notice that it is not a photograph of the SS-20. It is an artist's concept. Even Jane's cannot determine if the SS-20 is real or fake. I now want to reveal to you that I was the only one in the West who had an actual photograph of an SS-20 during all of this discussion. I was given two photographs of the SS-20 at least four years before the treaty was even signed. I was contacted by a Russian missile scientist in 1983 who had defected to the United States. He had learned about my concerns about the Russian missile force. I met with him and I promised not to reveal his name and I will keep that promise. I released these photographs in a video I made just months before Reagan and Gorbachev signed the INF Treaty. This is that video, and I entitled it, Russia Has Wooden Missiles. Now, this is the first of the two photographs. And it shows the Russian SS-20 missile in its upright firing position. It is somewhat obscured by the bushes indicating that the photograph was taken by someone not authorized to take the picture. The second photograph shows the missile with the soldier walking to the right side of it. Estimating the height of the soldier to be 6 feet, the missile appears to be about 18 feet tall. If you look real carefully, you will notice that the missile is marked with the numbers and letters SS-20, and there is a Russian Red Star clearly showing that it is a Russian missile. This is a photograph in the U.S. News and World Report magazine of November the 2nd, 1992, nine years after the scientists gave me the two photographs. It purports to show a stockpile of Soviet SS-18 and SS-20 missile sections 
end quote, meaning that it took the Russians nine years to find some SS-20s. And you will notice how much they looked like the rockets, the rocket in those two pictures I just showed you that are received from the Russian scientists. Now, I'm duly obligated, duly obligated to tell you the truth. Those two photographs of the missiles are phonies. I made the missile myself from a rolled paper form that is used in the construction industry as a form for pouring concrete posts. I purchased three of these forms, all about six feet tall. I painted them white, taped them together, attached a poster board nose cone, and then set the entire object on a metal bucket, turned upside down, so that the missile would look like it had a nozzle. I then cut some numbers out of some black paper and attached them with glue. And then to make the missile authentic, I cut out a red star and attached it as well. My missile was now complete and authentic. I made up the story about the Russian physicists smuggling these photographs out of the Soviet Union to give my story some authenticity. But my missile was a phony. I did this only as a method of showing you how easy it is to make a phony missile. I did not spend a lot of money on my project, but if I had had a lot more, I could have made my missile far more realistic. My missile looked like a missile, but it was phony. By the way, this is my attempt to make a mobile SS-20. <laughs> I put the top six-foot section of my missile in a wheelbarrow so that my missile could be moved to keep it from being detected. Now, this is an actual photograph of a Russian scientist making several other SS-20 missiles. Uh, in my video that I made in 1987, I announced that I was hoping that some Russian KGB agents had watched my video on Tucson television because I wanted them to know that if they ever launched any of their phony missiles on the United States, I was fully prepared to launch my phony missile in retaliation. I wanted them to know that I would launch my missile because I wanted to protect America. But let me get back to reality and show you that we have believed an enormous lie. The Russians have made a public display of their largest rockets for years in their annual May Day Parade. This is a picture of a, quote, Russian intercontinental ballistic missile, end quote. And for over 30 years, the American government believed that these rockets were real, and they had thousands of them poised to destroy America. But finally, on November the 19th, 1998, the New York Times finally told the truth. This article says that many of the monstrous strategic missiles displayed were only dummies. The newspaper had admitted that some of these rockets paraded during these May Day parades were fakes. Of course, the paper failed to say that I have been saying this ever since 1983, 15 years before the article came out. But the article told us an enormous truth, the reason the Russians built these phony missiles. It reported that the missiles had scared the United States into building a missile system worth billions. So it is true. 
Russia knew that the Americans believed the lie and that their belief would cost them billions of dollars.